0: Hello, listeners. Welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amber Nickel, the host of the channel, and today we are going to be talking with Sebastian Hubel about his most recent publication, Fighter, Worker, and Family Man German Jewish Men and Their Gendered Experiences in Nazi Germany from 1933 to 1941, which actually came out this year on University of Toronto Press. Sebastian is a faculty member in the history department at the University of Fraser Valley and he has penned several articles on Jewishness and masculinity in Nazi Germany and has been the recipient of several prestigious fellowships, including the Auschwitz Jewish Center Fellowship, where we actually met for the first time. Sebastian, let me be the first to welcome you to the channel.
1: Hi, Amber. Great to be here and greetings from beautiful British Columbia, Canada.
0: I'm really excited to discuss this text with you today, Um, but before we get started on the book itself and the content in the book, is there anything that you want to share with readers about yourself?
1: No, I'm just super excited to be on the channel. Thanks so much for the invitation, and yeah, hopefully we can stimulate some interest among your listeners when it comes to, you know, gender history and gender studies in the context of World War II and the Holocaust.
0: Certainly, certainly, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. I'm actually curious about the path that led you to this topic. What motivated you to research and write Fighter, Worker, and Family Man?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, As so often, you know, with a scholar's first real book, a monograph, same here in this case, Fighter, Worker, and Family Man, kind of originated as a revised um, dissertation that I used to write at the University of British Columbia in, in Vancouver here. Um, so I took kind of a couple of years off after grad school. Kind of came back to my to my work, looked at it with a set of fresh eyes, so to speak, and then basically tried to reach for the stars. And, You know, I, I said this is a this is an interesting dissertation. I have a lot of important stories to tell here, and I basically gave it a try and I approached the University of Toronto Press, and I uh, was proposal actually was quite well received and here I am super happy super lucky that I just published my first book but going back into the topic itself why I chose to work on German Jewish masculinities because yes arguably it seems a very unique and a very you know focused or kind of narrowed down topic when I applied for my PhD at UBC you know in the early 2010s or so like many grad students, I was confronted with that conundrum of you know developing a focus question or a PhD topic that hasn't really been explored yet or that no one really had looked into prior. And that's, of course, easier said than done because we all know that there's few other fields in history uh, than Holocaust and World War II that have been so extensively researched and, and, and analyzed. But then I basically, kind of as my first step, I looked into the historiography of the Holocaust and then and World War II. And these are basically topics I've been interested in uh, since my teenage years. You know, I was born and raised in Germany. So I kind of developed this, this, this kind of strange fascination for German history, including the darker chapters in German history, of course. And when I applied for my PhD, I basically read through historiographical critiques and essays and whatnot. And again and again, I kind of came across the odd reference that basically stated there are still some gaps in the scholarship when it comes to gender studies, especially in terms of men's studies. And that kind of got me thinking because I was relatively new to this field of gender studies, which is, of course, quite you know, extensive and also quite theoretical and conceptual. So it was kind of a, a fresh start for me, so to speak, when I started that PhD. And I, the more I dug deeper and looked into, looked into the existing scholarship and whatnot, I kind of got quite fascinated by it. And that's how I kind of came down to this topic. So it was. The starting point was kind of to look at some gaps and holes in existing scholarship, and kind of found my niche, so to speak. And when I say German Jewish masculinities, um, what I'm really saying here is this is not a this is not a typical study just on the Holocaust, so to speak. Arguably, my focus is actually more on the pre-war years, um, nineteen thirty-three to nineteen forty-one, or just around the time when the Second World War began. And again, kind of the idea here is to kind of come up with a with a focus that has been perhaps a little less explored in the past because there is already so much scholarship on the Holocaust and and in the Second World War, so to speak. So I was kind of interested in how German Jewish men experienced, you know, that onslaught, the the unleash of Nazi anti-Semitism right from the get-go, so to speak, from 1933. Um, The other kind of parameter, I guess, that helped me define my focus is not just so much in, in, in chronological terms, kind of going a little bit back and looking at the pre-war years. The other kind of decision I had to make when I decided on my topic was, you know, the the geographic focus, so to speak. And uh, there there is already some existing scholarship, of course, on on masculinities, and especially if you think of, you know, the the, the kind of SS, the Wehrmacht, kind of Aryan masculinity, where the focus, of course, is more on the perpetrators. If, if, if you think of works by Thomas Kühne, Christopher Dylan comes to mind and so on. Um, these kinds of works, they have they have a great focus on the perpetrators, but I decided to write more of a national history that looks at the at, at the victims or a group of victims, I should say Jewish men, um, that arguably no one really has looked at in, 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 in great depth. So when I kind of came up with this chronological and, and geographic kind of focus, I, I, I basically said, I, I, I cannot write a comparative history that looks at Jewish men across the European continent with that time span of 10, 15 years in mind, so to speak. So I kind of opted for a more narrow, in-depth focus and basically looked at German Jewish masculinities in pre-Nazi Germany. So that's a long answer, but hopefully that kind of gives a bit of an idea on how I kind of came up with that topic.
0: No, it certainly gives an idea. And I think it's, um, it's really great that you share that process that you went through. Uh, sometimes we have a lot of students that are in their kind of early grad years that are experiencing the same thing and just hearing other people talk about it, I think is, is a great experience. So one of the other things that you, you brought out in, in your description of kind of what led you here is the fact that this work relies heavily on gender analysis. And I think often when readers hear the word gender, they automatically assume that the topic's gonna be women. And as you point out, I think very well in your introduction, this often overshadows the uniquely gendered experiences of men. How am I thinking about masculinity in addition to some of the other categories that you address like class and age and other markers of identity? Uh, via this lens of intersectionality that you deploy, change the way that we might think about Jewish experiences in Nazi Germany.
1: Yeah, good. Maybe talk about theory first, right, and then we can look into some of the case studies. You know, it's a it's a smart approach here. Um, Basically, I think we kind of have, you know, taken it for granted that we know everything that happened to German Jews or European Jews um, during the Third Reich. Like We, we often look at the victims as like an entity, right, as a kind of a homogenous, kind of coherent group of victims, so to speak. But then it's also safe to say that over the last 20, 30, 40 years or so, historians have, you know, clearly outlined um, that identity and experience hinge on so many different kinds of threats, like you just said, age, class, um, ethnicity, of course, but also gender. And all of these categories that help us define identity, they all play an important, formidable role, actually, in my study. So intersectionality, as you just said, really um, is what drove my theory and my uh, methodology. I think men's studies are quite, or highly, actually, indebted, I would argue, to feminist scholarship and works like yeah, by eminent historians like Marion Kaplan, for instance, and many others um, have been quite highly influential uh, on my work. So digging deeper into the sea of gender, the experiences that Jewish men and women made as victims under the Nazi regime, I think allows us to differentiate a little bit better amongst the experiences and all these reactions that um, German Jews made under Hitler's regime. And we know how women were victimized by the Nazis. If you think of the forced sterilizations in Nazi Germany, or all the sexual violence that was happening in the camps, in the brothels, if you think of forced rape, or if you look at less physical or less sexual violence, we know how women... We're confronted with sustaining roles of being mothers, of holding their households together, um, of seeking immigration. So a lot of ground has been broken, and and feminist historians, starting in the 70s, 80s, um, have have, have hugely contributed to our understanding of how nuanced or how gender-based, basically, um, the Jewish experience and the reaction to to Nazi anti-Semitism was. But what was left out of these discourses, I think, were some questions that relate more specifically to men. So I believe that a study on German-Jewish masculinity can also yield, you know, important insights into the kind of personal lives of Jews in terms of how they, or Jewish men, I should say, in terms of how how they perceived their challenges against their livelihoods and how Jewish men, as men, so that includes as German citizens, right, as, as, as ex-soldiers, as World War One veterans, as husbands, as boyfriends, as fathers, all these kinds of gender roles that cumulatively um, constitute masculinity, how these roles were kind of upheld by Jewish men and how these Jewish men kind of processed this, 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 this challenge, this questioning, this trauma that they were undergoing. And I'm trying to do that basically through the lens of gender. So... of a unique approach uh, unique as in you know i'm not the inventor of men's studies of course but i don't think there has been much scholarship on exactly that kind of topic on jewish masculinities within this context of pre-nazi germany um yeah hope that answers your question
0: it does it certainly answers my question and as somebody who's pretty well read in um, many of the fields that you engage, I can agree that this is definitely a new contribution to thinking about not only the Holocaust, but experiences before the Holocaust. So I, I want to spend the rest of the time that we have together today to talk through some of these roles. And in the organization of your book, you really break down the rules by chapter, um, except for the last two chapters, which we'll talk about later. But my favorite chapter was actually your first chapter and i want to talk a little bit about that so i was particularly struck by your discussion of jewish military service and how that shaped masculinity how did jewish experiences of the military shape their understandings of masculinity and and how did this change during the third reich and how did jewish men respond to these changes
1: yeah that's a that's a great question. And um, Jewish masculinity in, in, in conjunction with notions of, of, of militarism. I think that's actually one of the case studies where I could rely to some degree on existing scholarship, um, because, you know, even outside of the context of, of, of German history, I'm um, Historians have kind of explored that 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 intricate kind of connection uh, between militarism and and gender identity, not just in the context of Jewish studies. Um. So here I was a bit fortunate that I could actually rely on 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 some very important scholarship by by other uh, by other historians. But nevertheless, it's it's a fascinating case study, of course. And I tried to you know make a contribution to new insights, so to speak, when I looked at the literally dozens if not hundreds of memoirs and, and 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 autobiographies and whatnot and this this case study kind of basically came to me it's one of these examples where the sources drive your research right and again and again and again and there were these numerous references uh, made by uh, by the authors that I looked at, uh, the, the survivors, the victims, these Jewish men, and actually their women. So sometimes I looked at, you know, um, biographies or memoirs written by Jewish or German-Jewish women. And in these narratives, in these sources too, r- constant references are made to one family member's a male member, to that member's um, military um, 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 service within German history, within the context of... of most most often are the first world war so i guess the synopsis would be um that many of these middle-aged acculturated german jewish men and i have to say that again middle-aged as in you know this generation born around say the year 1880 1890 or so people who had actively participated in the first world war fighting on the german side that many of these middle-aged and acculturated german jewish men. They strongly identified as Germans, as German citizens. They were highly patriotic because they felt like they had gained this kind of acceptance. They were included in German society. They felt this inclusion, this kind of acknowledgement, this kind of respect that German Jews had longed for, for well, hundreds of years, right, to be fully emancipated as a German citizen equipped with all rights and, and, and duties, so to speak. And they felt like they had reached that stage, that stage of acculturation, so to speak, through their contributions in World War I. They felt like they were established, established men, in their private and their public spheres or lives, so to speak. So when the Nazis come around in 1933 and unleashed I mean, wave after wave of anti-Semitic rhetoric and and, and this this plethora of policies whatnot, these Jewish men, they kind of reacted to this this perhaps expected or unexpected unleash of Nazi anti-Semitism. And many of these reactions, that's my basic premise here, were gendered, were highly gendered. Jewish men reacted in distinct gendered or idiosyncratically gendered ways, so to speak. Maybe just to throw in, I don't know, a couple of examples here. or So, uh, when the Nazis, um, you know, staged these these kind of famous or infamous April nineteen thirty three boycotts, where the Nazis told Germans, "Don't buy from Jewish stores, uh, don't visit you you know your Jewish um, um, corner store, etc." Any anymore, um, we need to stage this nationwide boycott against Jewish businesses to drive the Jews out of of the economy, so to speak. Um, whether or not this was successful, of course, is an entirely different question. But it's really interesting to see how many of these Jewish men or Jewish families, especially the ones who were self-employed who had their own business, how they kind of reacted to this this boycott, this economic boycott. And many of these reactions were gendered. So these. Jewish business owners, entrepreneurs, um, you know, they would still open their businesses and still hope for, uh, for their for for their visitors, for their customers to come and whatnot. And they did so by actively engaging with this Nazi anti-Semitism, trying to show their neighbors, the people they are very much acquainted with, you know, people living in their hometowns and whatnot, that they still continued identifying a st- strong. Oh, sorry, they still continued identifying as as German citizens, as, as as patriots, so to speak. And they did so by performing this kind of Jewish military masculinity. So these men would put on their World War I medals. They would bring out their old mm-hmm. rifles or, or swords. They would bring out flags and whatnot. They would display, you know... Um, war memorabilia and um, decorations, documents, awards and whatnot. They would actively perform this kind of military masculinity, trying to tell Germans, see who I am. I'm a fully included, emancipated German citizens like you. I have fought for this country, uh, for the fatherland. I have made my contributions and whatnot. I do not deserve to be treated in that way, so to speak. And this was a very highly uh, effective at the time, actually. um, and, and like I said, gendered kind of reaction, so to speak. Men Displaying or or, or or exhibiting their masculinity through kind of reliving a kind of war service that they had performed for their country. And when I say effective, as in what I mean by effective is that many non-Jewish Germans kind of agree with this. There's this kind of cultural consensus, so to speak, that you know military masculinity really strongly reverberates within German society at that time. And to some degree, German Jewish men were actually quite successful with this gendered reaction or strategy um, of, of performing a military masculinity. Um, you know, many neighbors or German society in general kind of continued um, engaging and socializing with many of the, of the German Jews as they had done for decades, of course. And there was this kind of common denominator, something that uh, that 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 served as a glue, so to speak, for the time being. And military masculinity is one of these examples. And then I kind of highlight a number of other examples in the book how military masculinity was not just kind of a random strategy that men used in, in reaction to Nazi anti-Semitism, but where I show that you know military masculinity actually yielded tangible, real results, like. World War One veterans, for instance, that could prove that they had fought in the First World War actually received preferential treatment, right? Um, um, many of the civil servants who were Jewish in, in Nazi Germany for the time being were able to continue their employment because of that World War One veteran status, so to speak, or their kids were allowed to continue going to school for the time being, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I'm looking here at, 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 at the pre-war era I basically kind of show how German Jews in general, and by in general I mean men and women, relied on Jewish men's military status, something that both men and women kind of clinched onto and and perpetuated. For instance, this is actually one of the really kind of fascinating parts of this chapter. There's literally dozens of letters written protest notes really written to Hitler or president Hindenburg in, in pre-war years, um, written by Jewish women where they basically protest against, you know, this alleged unfair treatment that German Jews were receiving. And they basically use as their evidence, um, their husbands or fathers or uncles or some family members, basically military service and the decorations that they had earned, um, 10, 20 years prior, so to speak. So in their eyes, even Jewish women's eyes, military masculinity is what qualified them as German citizens with continued rights. And they were kind of making this vocal that they were still seeing a future in Germany and that they, in their eyes, were fully emancipated and yeah. Yeah, fully emancipated citizens with with all rights and duties um, that they had One, so to speak, over many, many hundreds of years, and they kind of wanted to continue upholding these norms and values, so to speak. So again, gender study really helps us understand the reactions, the perceptions of German Jews here, and how some of these reactions and contestations really were gendered and how they were performed, right, by Jewish men and women, kind of together, so to speak. Gender is always fluid and is being negotiated and is being constructed by men and women at the same time. So. I think this is kind of a, a really a suitable case study that kind of shows us um, kind of how it, that it kind of underlines that.
0: Certainly. In addition to this, I think, very thorough examination of uh, the relationship between constructions of gender and military service uh, within the Third Reich, you also look at the ways in which Nazi propaganda attempted to emasculate and hypersexualize Jewish men. Can you tell listeners today a little bit about what this looked like and the responses of Jewish men and women?
1: Yeah, not a good question. Um, so I think it's becoming quite evident at this point here that my book basically consists of a series of interconnected case studies. So, whereas in the first chapter, I looked at, you know, military masculinity or this 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 manifestation of Jewish men constructing their own identity through this kind of military habitus so to speak where they identified with military norms you know trying to perform a certain behavior that kind of corresponded to what mainstream German society which was highly militaristic of course um, what they kind of adhered to <clears throat> pardon me and valued so being obedient, steadfast um, trying to persevere, weather the storm, et cetera, et cetera, this kind of uh, heroic, stoic kind of behavior. <clears throat> in addition to this kind of military masculinity, I'm looking basically in my second chapter at, at how exactly this military masculinity kind of was challenged by the Nazis, so to speak. So when we look at pre war Nazi propaganda, we can kind of see how Jewish masculinity was severely challenged and attacked, how Jewish men basically were were ridiculed, were emasculated, were made look like um they were impotent, they were weak, they were incapable of being soldiers, fighting for the German for the, for the German fatherland, etc. etc. So they were kind of graphically depicted as 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 unmanly men, so to speak. And this is kind of the connection that I make then basically to the second chapter here. Where it goes more into the sexual kind of bodily realm, so to speak, where I kind of kind of show how you know the Nazi state again tried to kind of ridicule um, German masculinity. In this case, more through making Jews look like they were outside of the mainstream, so to speak. They were performing and exhibiting abnormal behaviors, abnormal sexual kind of. Uh, behavior, so to speak. So again, the, the attempt is to kind of segregate, to make Germans understand that Jews are different, and are other with a capital O, so to speak, and kind of trying to send this message of warning, right, trying to kind of disseminate the idea that the Jew is kind of a threat, so to speak. So in the second chapter, where I focus more on propaganda and, and sexual identity, I'm basically relying on a case study uh, which is called race uh, race defilement or rassenschande in german and it's kind of a fascinating case study in as that the nazis really undertook a vigorous approach in trying to disseminate exactly this kind of idea that the jew in germany is basically a threat to you and you should not associate hang out socialize with jews anymore and the nazis tried to kind of get that or yeah, get that message home so to speak by sending out this array of messages, of graphic um, and images, of of of, of, uh, of caricatures and whatnot that basically tried to show how Jewish men were sexually abnormal. You know, that German Jews basically had these behaviors, these tendencies of being a rapist, of trying to lure German, uh, sorry, yeah, German women, you know, these blonde, uh, blue-eyed, innocent men um, 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 passive kind of women, so to speak, into their cars, into their offices, into their homes and whatnot, only to kind of racially defile um, the German uh, blood pool, so to speak, the German um, um, race, in other words. So there was this kind of sexual fantasy, this kind of paranoia, so to speak, where the Nazis tried to engage in, 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 in a propaganda that was highly, highly gendered. It was always... Not always, but most of the time, uh, the, the evil Jew that was kind of portrayed in this Nazi propaganda, the evil Jew was typically male in character, in phenotype, um, in, in in design, uh, whatever you want to call it, so to speak. So when I look at this kind of um, deconstruction of cultural discourses, I basically look at three different layers. The first layer is, like I just said, that kind of discourse, the kind of cultural antisemitism that was highly gendered and sexual and then i basically kind of tried to to show how this discourse this this is the, the cultural realm basically how that kind of translated into tangible policies into actions into into a reality so to speak and I think many of your listeners of course know that you know the nazis passed these infamous race laws the nuremberg race laws in 1935 and if you look a little deeper here we can see these kinds of gendered you know, connotations when it comes to these kinds of policies and whatnot. For instance, um, Jewish households um, were not allowed to hire Aryan maids, you know, non-Jewish girls under the age of 45. Something completely, well, it seems like mind-boggling, so to speak, right? Why would you not be allowed to hire a domestic female aide, so to speak, under the age of 45? Why come up with such a specific law or policy? But again, it kind of shows us really how gendered Nazi propaganda and this this Nazi anti Semitism was. It, it, the underlying message is we cannot trust Jewish males. They might act- actively engage in this kind of racial pollution, so to speak, which is, of course, in the Nazi eye, a, a major obsession and a, and a threat. And the Nazis tried everything possible to kind of undermine and and, and stop this kind of racial mixing and whatnot. But it was typically the Jewish male that was the aggressor that was kind of held as, as, a, as, as a villain, so to speak, and his uncontrollable sexual lust, so to speak, that needed um, to be controlled, in other words. So I'll give a number of examples of policies and ways the Nazis tried to engage exactly in this kind of gendered, sexualized discourse and how they tried to undermine, you know, kind of normal, manhood or hegemonic masculinity in other words they were trying to show that jewish men were not normal jewish uh, men or they were not normal men so to speak and and that's kind of the second layer right so i'm looking at the cultural and the policy so to speak these two first layers but then arguably my my main focus is on the third layer the, the personal the kind of more subjective sphere so to speak where i really look at, at the people who were addressed in this kind of propaganda. So I'm basically asking, you know, what did Jewish men make of all of this? Did they believe in this propaganda? Did they laugh about it? You know, it was hard to avoid it. You know, when you walk to school when you walk on the street and whatnot, and you see with these, these aggressive um, virulent Nazi propaganda posters or, or or newspapers, Der Stürmer and and, and whatnot. I mean, I, I've seen this time and again in, in these memoirs were Jewish men or the memoirs and, and, and diaries that I basically look at, how they kind of reflect on on this new presence of Nazi anti-Semitism and how highly gendered and sexual it basically was. The people write about it, so it mattered to them. I mean, that's one thing we can already kind of learn from this kind of analysis. And then I try to go a little deeper and try to analyze exactly what it meant for these for German Jews in general, for men and women. And the reactions were the reactions varied, which is probably not that surprising. We I have come across instances where you know Jewish men took this this discourse of racial anti-Semitism and and, and racial um, 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 yeah racial anti-Semitism and. And then racial pollution or race defilement took that very, very seriously and actually adapted their day-to-day behaviors. They were more apprehensive and more hesitant to go out and, you know, say meet meet women in a cafe, in a bar or, or talking to someone on the street, so to speak. Why? Because they feared the consequences of this cultural discourse that the Nazis unleashed. And the subsequent policies, the the, the penalties, the laws that came into effect in these early mid-1930s, and that included literally thousands of cases of race defilement, where more often than not, a Jewish man would end up in court being accused of having an illegal or illegitimate intimate sexual relationship with a non-jewish woman and that was persecuted. you could get persecuted for this ending up or with the result of, of spending years and years uh, in jail so it's really interesting that some men actually did correspond or did react to these these policies and adapted their behaviors and that could be things that we find quite benign or innocuous say you know, someone ended up or or someone stopped going to the swimming pool uh, because this was often the kind of sphere or place, so to speak, that the German media engaged in saying, oh, last week, you know, Jewish men were seen again at the local swimming pool trying to lure uh, women, uh, non-Jewish women, you know, into their private homes for a, an after party and whatnot. There's this kind of paranoia, this kind of aggressive um, 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 yeah, anti-Semitism that circulated in the German media. Not only was it omnipresent, it definitely had an effect on on Jewish men and women. So when I say German women, what I mean here is, you know, if you look at the family as a, as a unit, so to speak, it was the mothers or the sisters or some kind of family member and whatnot. They, of course, also consumed this Nazi discourse, this anti-Semitism. They internalized it and they reacted to it in their own ways, saying, you know, we don't want we don't want our uncle or brother or whatnot to go out um, as they used to before and and, and, and you know meet meet strangers say in a city you know Berlin and whatnot and just have a good time and whatnot. These are different times and we need to adapt to the new realities and the new dangers that this Nazi dictatorship springs with and again this is one of these examples that I mentioned earlier it's a case study that um, that kind of shows us how important it is to look at the pre-war years, when, in this case, German Jews tried to normalize these, these up, abnormal times. And this happened in, in highly gendered ways. It's basically one of the things I'm trying to show in this chapter, or in the book in general. Sorry, the answer is a little longer, but obviously I love talking about this topic.
0: <laughs> oh, no, we love long answers here at New Books Network. Um, you know, it gives us a chance to really think through some of the material And um, that this chapter in particular though, the one that we just discussed, I think is a really great addition to classrooms when you're thinking about uses of propaganda uh, because it definitely reads against some of the grains that we have thought about previously. Perhaps one of your um, more provocative chapter titles is Double Burden. And I think uh, within popular culture, many of us have connotations of what this has meant and continues to mean for women in contemporary times. However, for me, it's not necessarily something I think about naturally for men. Can you tell us a little bit more about the double burden that you're referencing and how it relates specifically to Jewish men? And on top of that, again, how Jewish men are responding to this burden under pressures from the Third Reich?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, It's indeed a kind of or could be seen possibly as a kind of provocative term, um, double burden. I'm basically copying or or reusing this kind of term that has been used in the past by, you know, gender historians and and, and scholars in the context of of World War II and Holocaust studies, um, especially historians who have looked at, you know, women's experience and the women's situation um, during the Holocaust, so to speak. So the term double burden kind of originated in the context that, you know, women carried this double burden as being Jews. So being, you know, um, attacked by the Nazis as a Jewish person, but also as a, as a female, so to speak. So when I referenced, you know, the sexualized violence and the camp brothels, the sterilizations, the mass rapes and whatnot, um, that's kind of a, a fitting term the the term double burden, because it kind of provides this kind of double meaning, right, that that Jewish women were basically attacked on two different fronts, so to speak. But I thought it's still appropriate um, to use the term double burden in my case study or in my study as well. And That's basically again the, the main argument of the book, right? Where I'm trying to show that um, Jewish men, or in my case German Jewish men, were also attacked not simply as Jews, but as men as well. Where their masculinity, where their manhoods were questioned, were challenged, and and, and vigorously um, attacked linguistically, culturally, like through pro- propaganda, as I just mentioned a minute ago, but also in physical um, manifestations. Um, you know, where Jewish men's bodies and 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 and, and Yeah, bodies were attacked, so to speak. I think we talk about that probably a little bit later when we talk about the camps and whatnot. But so, again, long story short, I don't think the term double burden is meant as a provocation as in me disagreeing with, you know, feminist scholarship or methodologies and whatnot. Um, I highly, highly benefited uh, from the groundwork that has been laid by feminist historians starting, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Um, thanks to their scholarship, we have a much better and nuanced understanding of of the Jewish experience in, 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 in wartime Europe Um under under Nazi control, so to speak, but again, coming back to this term of double burden, what I'm trying to to look at is kind of how men or Jewish men were also doubly burdened, so to speak. So again, were they not just, were they were not in t- exclusively attacked as Jews, uh, but but as Jewish men? So my first two case studies, I think, already kind of underlined this, um, you know, the military masculinity men were being questioned and denied a military status so to speak you know world war one medals were sometimes taken away or jewish men were excluded from the from the new german military the wehrmacht right i mean believe it or not but some jewish men in these early years of of hitler's reign they wanted to join the army and they felt deeply deeply um disillusioned and, and and humiliated that they couldn't join the army anymore or that 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 the, the sense of military masculinity was basically taken away from them. And then again, in the second chapter, I look at, you know, the, the sexual norms and how German Jewish men apparently deviated from these norms. Um, so again, these are two, already two, two examples of, of a double burden, so to speak. They were not simply questions as Jews, but also their manhood was questioned, their sexuality was, uh, was questioned, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm trying to do in the middle part of my book, chapters three, four, and five, is to look at perhaps more conventional kind of roles that men try to adhere to and perform because they identify these roles um, as, as, as as something that men have to perform, so to speak. So this is kind of cultural, social construction expectation that men kind of have to fulfill um, these roles. And that, by the way, transcends... Um, you know, the history of Nazi Germany. Like, I guess I'm a little vague here, What I'm re- specifically referring to is men trying to fulfill the roles of the breadwinner, of basically making an income, of having a job, in other words, of being able to provide for themselves and their dependents, their children, their families, et etc. Et so chapter three looks at the issue of employment, you know, where Jewish men basically try to stay in employment, so being a breadwinner notion, chapter four looks at the idea of um, Jewish men being fathers because it is part of, a, of of the definition of manhood or masculinity to be able to have children, to create and raise a family, so to speak, and of course to take care of, of your dependents of your children, so to speak. So again, breadwinner, the father of role and the husband role i'm looking in chapter five or chapter four pardon me at the role of of jewish men trying to continue fulfilling the proper role of being a husband so to speak so again when i use the word double burden that's kind of what i'm trying to show here how german jewish men struggled to uphold these these roles of staying employed of being good fathers and being good husbands and this is really the kind of Space in my book where I can go much much more deeper and kind of enter this kind of personal subjective realm, and where I almost kind of engage in you kind of a, a bit of a psychoanalysis, so to speak. I'm very very interested in in the in the world of emotions and feelings that these men uh, had to undergo, so to speak. Um, let's look at the first case study, for instance, employment. I mean, it's, it's probably not a huge surprise to the listeners here to find out that you know. More and more German Jewish, or German Jews in general, but men, um, especially who were kind of trying to fulfill this traditional notion of being, you know, the breadwinner, the head of the household, so to speak, who you know have a job, are employed, and basically can provide for the family. It's probably not a huge surprise that unemployment figures started to increase after the Nazis came to power. Um, you know, more and more. Jewish employees um, were let go of their jobs unless you were self-employed. And more and more Jewish families faced destitution Were facing an existential struggle, so to speak. And again, what I'm trying to show in this case study is basically how Jewish men adapted to these kinds of pressures. Of continuing to fulfill these roles as breadwinners, as having a job, as having an income, so to speak, and for many of these men, it was a hugely traumatizing experience. That pressure actually many of them crumbled under it, so to speak. And I have come across many instances where Jewish men, you know, I'm kind of actually resorted to suicide because they lost the job. They were. F- Feeling as failures, as, as, as basically men who were no longer men because they could not provide for their families, they could not provide for their dependents. Whereas in other, many, many other cases, we see kind of contrary um, reactions, so to speak, where Jewish men were trying to maintain these roles as being employed, as being as the provider, as being uh, financially able to you know, find jobs and whatnot. So when Jewish men were let go of their jobs, I have come across numerous references where Jewish men basically try to adapt and find a new job, go through retraining, or become self-employed, or find a kind of niche employment. Possibly being, you know, a solicitor, going from house to house trying to sell something. Why? Because they felt responsible. They felt that pressure to continue maintaining that role of being the breadwinner. They felt responsible for their hus- for their wives, for their with the children is etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a very tr- it's a very emotional case study, as you can imagine, um, where you can really feel and kind of engage with that trauma, with that with that agony that many Jewish men basically engage with. And this is by mo- no means I'm, by no means am I trying to say here that you know Jewish. Um, women uh, played a less heroic role and did not, you know, contribute to the household, to the income, to the survival of of, of the family units, so to speak. But what I'm trying to show here is basically what, well, in a sense, historians not have or haven't really looked at in, in great detail how Jewish men kind of reacted to this to this pressure um, of 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 being basically emasculated. As in not being able to provide for themselves and their families anymore. So again, the, the, the reactions varied highly from suicide and passive depressive behaviors. We know Jewish men start hanging out more in the private sphere, so to speak, resort to alcoholism and and, and other kinds of um, behaviors that kind of show the helplessness, so to speak, which made them, of course, feel more emasculated vis-a-vis their families, their children, their wives, etc. And that's exactly kind of how gender, again, gets constituted, right? Through this vibrant dynamic um, where men and women equally contribute. So gender is constituted or, or constructed by, by all participants. And when, when I come across you know, a memoir or a diary written by a Jewish woman, or a or, or child, so to speak, who who recollects how their fathers and husbands were struggling and basically um, um, succumbing to this this kind of pressure, and then how it broke them basically, how it broke their their their, their characters, their lives, their their their, their psyches. Um, we can see how, in a sense, Nazi anti-Semitism was successful in emasculating Jewish men. But that's what I'm trying to show in this chapter here. It, it's much too simplistic and a generalization to just say, you know, um, um, Jews were the victims, or in this case, Jewish men were the victims, and the Nazis were simply able to penetrate <clears throat> German Jewish life, and then basically brought horror and, and 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 agony into these into these people's lives. Far from the truth, we see this really active kind of resistance in these attempts where German Jewish men tried to retain a sense of agency. And, you know, someone who was a lawyer, who was a judge who had, again, climbed the career ladder, so to speak, and was highly acculturated and, and had taken this pride in in their accomplishments in their education in their jobs. And, and, and for that reason, by the way, was less inclined to seek emigration, um, Exactly, these kinds of cases show us how gender reactions were, and even though many of these men were acculturated, and and and, and were were kind of continuing to identify um, with their accomplishments and whatnot, these men still were trying all the means they had available um, and to continue making an economic existence uh, in Germany. So often, quite heartbreaking stories, you know, where someone ends up being uh, um, employed in in kind of Factory on kind of menial industrial labor jobs and whatnot that these men were incapable of actually doing um, Because they didn't have the training or they didn't have the physique They were old they were all close to retirement and whatnot and they were shoveling coal and whatnot so again, just trying to maintain that sense of normalcy trying to Trying to continue making a living in Nazi Germany. It was a highly highly traumatizing experience for many of these men And yet many of them persevered and for the time being at least found the means uh, to continue making a living that, that, that relates to the other two case studies um, like fathers and husbands where um, they too were trying to kind of almost desperately trying to fulfill these roles, so to speak as a father, you know, especially actually in this context of being unemployed um, where were we can see more Jewish men having an increased presence in the private sphere, in the domestic sphere at home, basically, where many of these fathers now spend actually more time with their children and with their wives, so to speak, where we kind of have this almost new level of, of intimacy, so to speak. So again, kind of a, a reaction or maybe a consequence of Nazi, Nazi anti-Semitism that we wouldn't actually think of uh, right away, right? There's this this newfound... Time and presence, so to speak. So, here we can see how Jewish men try to adhere or or cling onto these roles of fathers and husbands um, as an attempt to maintain their sense of manhood, of masculinity, so to speak. So, we can see more and more Jewish fathers now hanging out with their children or spending time with their children. Giving them advice, giving them you know tutoring service after school, so to speak, trying to help them to be successful in school and earn good grades, so they would have a good future, a good career, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So again something that seems relatively innocuous or benign, so to speak. Okay, a man hanging out at home with the children and, and giving them math uh, math tutoring and whatnot. But I think it was a gendered reaction, and it's not a co- it's not a coincidence, so to speak. And I think it's very very critical and important for us to of critically reflect on some of these traditional roles that we use to define masculinity a men being a father being engaged being employed and being a husband so to speak how exactly these roles continue to function um, in nazi germany yes.
0: Yeah, I think that takes us right up to your final two chapters, which actually focus on life for Jewish men inside and outside of the camp system inside of Germany. What were some of the differences and similarities across these spaces?
1: Yeah, that's okay. Interesting question. Yeah, chapters five and six, the final two chapters look, like you just said, more like at violence. And kind of how German Jewish men processed this kind of physical violence. So whereas previous chapters looked at you know the kind of more non-physical ways of emasculating Jewish men, say through propaganda, say through denying someone a military status or depriving Jewish men, you know, the, the means to make an income. Um, these were all more or le- less physical manifestations um, of Nazi anti-Semitism when it when it comes to its gendered um, uh, gendered. Um, um, gendered way, so to speak. Chapters 5 and 6 look exactly at more the physical kind of uh, side of the story, so to speak, and I try to make that distinction between um, physical violence that Jewish men were subject to outside of the camp system, so to speak, and then chapter 6 looks more like at how Jewish men processed physical violence within the camps. But again, I have to make the note here that I'm looking at pre-war Nazi concentration camps. That's why I draw the border. So I'm not looking at, you know, German Jews after they had been sent east, deported to, you know, places like Auschwitz and whatnot. I exclusively focus on Germany itself, so to speak. But anyways, I think one of the major points that we need to need to understand here in this context of violence and anti-Semitism and gender in Nazi Germany is that Uh, much of the physical pre-war violence was actually very gendered or was directed um, against Jewish men here. And that includes, you know, the kind of more informal, kind of impromptu kind of physical violence, say on the street, say street violence, you know, when German Jews were beaten up, so to speak, for being Jewish, often or more often than not, this kind of violence was directed against Jewish men. So, you know, German perpetrators... Nazis, members of the SS, Hitler Youth, and whatnot. In these early years, there they were still these kinds of reservations to single out and and physically hurt Jewish children, Jewish women, um, etc. But also the institutionalized kind of violence, so more the top-down kind of violence, you know, directed by by the state, by the Nazi Party. That too was highly highly gendered. Um, if you think of, you know, the the infamous. November 1938 programs, Kristallnacht, Night of Broken Glass here. And we see many, many German Jews being, you know, um, um, victimized, being, uh, being physically hurt in their private spheres at night when the Nazis broke into, you know, um, Jewish homes but they desecrated the synagogues and broke a lot of property and whatnot. But but many people were or Jewish men were, were physically injured and 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 and, and victimized. M- many people died. And then of course the subsequent deportations, right? We see thirty plus thousand, no sorry, thirty thousand plus German Jews who were taken out of their homes and were deported into the into the Nazi concentration camps at that time, Dachau, Sachsenhausen, Buchenwald. But of these 30,000 plus German Jews who were deported, all of them were men. And again, this is not kind of coincidental. And I think it, it really requires a sharp lens for us to look into exactly why this was the case. And again, the answer, of course, is that Nazi anti-Semitism was highly gendered. But then more importantly, we have to look at the reactions, how German Jews reacted to this. And I think in November eighteen 18- 38, it was quite unexpected. Um, How they reacted to this kind of unprecedented and unexpected physical attack against their lives, so to speak. And I kind of came up with two, or I discovered basically two kind of um, um, strategies, gendered strategies that German Jews, men and women, kind of resorted to. So when this, this, this violence kind of, you know, tra- started to transpire in the fall of 1938, and then the news spread like a wildfire that Jewish men would be arrested and sent to concentration camps and whatnot, we can see that many German Jewish families basically tried to overcome these kinds of dangers and, and calamities by, by, by sending the Jewish men away. So this kind of hide strategy, going into hiding or literally escaping, often through illegal means, you know, going through the mountains in Austria or or into Switzerland or crossing the border into uh, Czechoslovakia or Belgium and whatnot. It was Jewish men who were sent on the road, often with their sons, elderly sons, and they were sent onto the road basically to get out of Germany before it was too late, so to speak. So this escape strategy was a gendered strategy in these times. Whereas Jewish women, you know, were trying to stay behind, taking care of the household, maybe selling the property or trying to find, um, trying to secure immigration visa, et cetera, et cetera, as Marion Kaplan and many others have kind of shown, so to speak. But from a man's perspective, the general reaction was to seek escape or go into hiding. And there's numerous accounts where you know Jewish men went into hiding for a week, a couple weeks, a month or whatnot, and trying to actively avoid arrest, deportation, and of course all the ensuing, subsequent um, 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 brutalities and, and physical physical attacks against them in these camps. So this was yeah, evidently quite a, a general reaction, and that's kind of the focus in, in chapter five, how outside of the camp um, physical violence kind of, transpired and how Jewish men kind of reacted to it. And and pardon me, not just Jewish men, but Jewish families in general. So this was kind of a teamwork attempt where many Jewish families, you know, kind of decided together as a team, what would be best to circumvent some of these dangers that apparently male were predominantly facing in these pre-war years, so to speak. And then chapter six kind of looks at, you know, how violence was gendered in the camps in pre-war Nazi Germany. And here again, I tried to make a lot of kind of intricate connections to my previous case studies. So for instance, military masculinity. We could see how military masculinity was kind of questioned or kind of denied inside these camps. So for instance, where we have, you know, Um, camp guards and whatnot, treating these Jewish men as little children, basically linguistically kind of dehumanizing them and emasculating them, denying that they basically had kind of fought in the war. They were, these these Jewish men were basically kind of treated as, as unmilitary men, as, as, as people basically who could not, you know, withstand physical challenges and hardship and whatnot. But that's the interesting part here then. If you look at the reactions of these Jewish men in these cases, or sorry, in, in the camps here, we can see highly, highly gendered reactions. And again, military masculinity is one that comes to mind here. We can see in the memoirs, autobiographies, where Jewish men who survived, of course, Nazi Germany in the Holocaust, what I would remember that their... That Continued performance of military masculinity basically saved them or made their camp experience a lot easier. So, kind of reliving, you know, some of these legacies of the First World War, kind of showcasing again this kind of military habitus. As in, you know, standing at attention, showing obedience to authority, following the orders, and being hard, physically steadfast, so to speak, <clears throat> not questioning authority or the orders from the, from the Nazi perpetrators, etc., etc. You're clicking your heels, standing at attention, all these kinds of things. Um, in, in, in the view of the memoirists and on, on authors that I looked at, in their views, showcasing this kind of military masculinity saved them or made their camp experience more tolerable. Whereas people who could not kind of relate to this kind of military experience, this kind of military habitus, because, I don't know, they were too young, they had not experienced the First World War, or they had not acquired this kind of cultural set of norms and values, so they could not perform this kind of military masculinity, say they were, maybe they were frail, they were quite advanced in their age they were not physically fit so to speak or they kind of personified exactly what the nazis were trying to they kind of they kind of personified a, a type of man that the nazis uh, um, intended to attack you know the, the jewish man who is quite um who's quite upper class, who lives this kind of lavish, ostentatious lifestyle, who is a capitalist, who has never worked hard, who has never fought in the war, so to speak, who is quite intellectual and educated and whatnot. These were the primary victims because that's the kind of masculinity the Nazis imposed on these Jewish men, and that's the ones that they prefer to single out and and, and torture and, and dehumanize and emasculate even more. So I have come across instances where, you know, uh, your fate over life and death could depend on whether or not you were wearing glasses. Because if you were glasses, you looked like an intellectual, a doctor, a physician, whatnot. And the Nazis in these camps would focus more on and, and single out these kind of men, so to speak, which of course is a, is a very, yeah, kind of terrible case study to look at, as you can imagine. But again, the, the forms of gendered attacks in these camps and the gendered reactions are very, very important for us to keep in mind. And then one thing that I also tried to do in this chapter <clears throat> that's perhaps a little more non-traditional or kind of a, at least I have not come across this in previous scholarship, is I'm trying to analyze the relationships between these Jewish men in the camps to the outer world, to their families outside the camps. And I think this is a really unique case study here, so to speak, because you know if we focus on the Holocaust, if we focus on, on the Second World War, then, of course, it was Jewish families in total that were deported and then sent into ghettos and camps and whatnot. But in this case, we can look at pre-war um, um, anti-Semitism where we see Jewish men being in the camps, Whereas their women and, and, and families, whatnot, remained outside. So, how did this kind of relationship develop, and how did Jewish men try to maintain a sense of masculinity vis-à-vis the outer world? I think this is a really kind of insightful, intriguing question, and it fascinated me to see how Jewish men, being completely in a, being in this powerless situation, being incarcerated in a camp, not knowing what the future would bring, how they still try to fulfill these kinds of gender roles and and, and, gender roles and trying to perform the roles as, as proper men, the way they understood manhood, the way they kind of had internalized masculinity. And that goes back to the previous case studies, as I just mentioned, being fathers, being husbands, being breadwinners. So, in this kind of letter correspondence that I looked at, I can see numerous numerous instances where these men were literally giving advice to their husband to their do I say husbands to their wives um to their girlfriends to their children, whatnot, what to do, how to behave, how to be good at school or telling their wives how to fill out um, tax declaration forms uh, in in the proper way, or how to seek an immigration visa, what office to visit, what friend to seek help from, or or how to find better employment, or how to manage the finances at home, etc., etc. So, we should not make this mistake and think, you know, Jewish men locked into concentration camps in pre-war Nazi Germany, they were there, they were silent, they were just Sitting passively, idly, and waiting, and waiting for 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 what was next to come, so to speak. Far from the truth, we see a very kind of active, almost defiant performance, actually, by these Jewish men trying to upheld, uphold, uphold, and, and and kind of continuously perform these roles of, of masculinity. And it, uh, yeah, it was it was it was quite astonishing to actually see these kinds of attempts to again trying to make life normal at least for the people outside of the camps in then Jewish men were vigorously trying to, to to kind of normalize and adapt to these to these various forms of Nazi anti-semitism and like I said like I many times said we' highly gendered again sorry for the long answer but um this is yeah it's a, it's, a, it's a very important case study I think um looking at the reactions of physical violence in and outside of the camps
0: yeah well, Sebastian, we've actually taken up quite a bit of your time today, um, but I want to I want to wrap up with our interview traditional question, um, and that is, what are you working on now?
1: Yeah, right now I'm just being super busy with you know teaching and, and grading papers. It's April right now, so final exams <laughs> and whatnot. But I think your question is more like geared towards the future, right? Future research and whatnot. Um, I don't know tons of ideas topics. Um, there's a number of case studies or, or, or instances um, that I could you know look into related to my previous work that I didn't really have the, the time or the chance yet or maybe the source base wasn't just there you know at numerous conferences I was asked for instance um, if I had looked into German Jewish masculinities and, and, and looked at homosexualities or sexualities in more. In, in more uh, but more generally speaking, um, that's something I'd like to do. But again, many of the of the sources that I looked at that were quite tacit were were were, were quiet on sexual matters, including homosexual, including Jewish homosexuality. So I think that's an important and kind of um, uh, interesting topic. And another one that I'd like to look more into is um, probably sports, athletics, and kind of how Jewish men resorted to or tried to maintain physical um, uh, physical well-being through the means of sport, so to speak, and also kind of connected to gender, so to speak. Because again, an able-bodied, healthy, athletic kind of male, so to speak, is more of a male, is more of a man. And when German-Jewish men were denied you know, entry into the military or became increasingly unemployed and whatnot, I think many Jewish men would have, of course, depending on class and age, would have kind of resorted to staying engaged and busy in through the means of sports so to speak and possibly maintain the higher sense of manhood there so again i'm going in circles here but i think the world of of sports and gender could be another fascinating uh, case study that's worth looking more into in the future
0: i think both of those sound amazing and i would certainly read both Um, (laughs) uh, so you, you need to get to work on those uh, that being said, thank you for joining us on New Books in Jewish Studies today, Sebastian.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, sorry I went a little over the time limit here, but...
0: Oh, that's okay. Yeah, there's no official time limit. Um, for the listeners out there, if today's discussion really piqued your interest, you can pick up a copy of Sebastian Hubel's Fighter, Worker, and Family Man, German-Jewish Men and Their Gendered Experiences in Nazi Germany from 1933 to to 1941 directly from University of Toronto Press or order it from your local bookstore.